Welcome to The Republican Professor. Today we have with us a very special guest. Once again, Dr. Vernon Grounds, PhD, former president of Denver Seminary. Thanks for being here, Vernon. Just to be clear, Vernon is joining us from the grave. Through his writing, Emotional Problems and the Gospel, a book that he published with Zondervan in 1976, and we're in part two, The Bible and Anxiety. Here's Vernon. Whatever view of prophecy they may hold, most evangelicals agree that Luke 21, 25, and 26 is a passage which seems to be finding fulfillment in the late 20th century. Talking to his disciples in the very shadow of the cross, Jesus tells them that as a forewarning of his long-delayed return from glory, quote, there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars, and upon the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken, end quote. Though human life has always been turbulent and unpredictable, in the last quarter of the 20th century, we are living in a situation of global anxiety, which causes people everywhere to experience fear and foreboding. In a 1961 cover article, Time had this to say, quote, anxiety seems to be the dominant fact and is threatening to become the dominant cliche of modern life. It shouts in the headlines, laughs nervously at talk cocktail parties, nags from advertisements, speaks suavely in the boardroom, whines from the stage, clatters from the Wall Street ticker, jokes from fake youthfulness on the golf course, and whispers in privacy each day before the shaving mirror and the dressing table, end quote. This is Vernon again. World conditions have grown steadily worse since then. Until today, many people are starting to confess out loud that they are obsessed by a mood of doom and gloom. Christians, unfortunately, are not automatically exempt from the anxious anxiety which troubles their non-Christian contemporaries. The undeniable fact is that some Christians seem to worry just as much as worried non-Christians. They worry not only because of national and planetary crises, they worry also because human existence, even in periods of relative tranquility, is precarious and uncertain. How then can we help our fellow believers appropriate, appropriate and apply the resources of biblical faith in handling this all-too-prevalent hang-up? And in doing that, how can we likewise help ourselves? For as readers of the gospel, we must not forget that pointed saying, which was current in the first century, 
Palestine, and which is still pertinent in the 20th century America. Quote, physician, heal thyself, unquote. We are grappling with an intensely personal problem. What can be done then to relieve this viscera tightening reaction, this feeling of free floating apprehension, whether tolerably mild or intolerably severe? As we know, all kinds of advice are offered, all sorts of therapeutic strategies suggested. For one thing, an anxiety-ridden person may be counseled to take pills. He may be urged to have a doctor prescribe sedatives or tranquilizers. Or he may be urged to buy himself a little peace of mind at the drugstore, some patented antidepressant. Certainly, there are cases when medication is imperative and should be gratefully taken as a physician directs. <clears throat> Because Christians tend to despise this legitimate use of medication, however, it may be well to consider the implications of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 21 through 23. Quote, Therefore let no man glory in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours, and ye are Christ's, and Christ's is God's, unquote. Notice the assurance which Paul gives his fellow believers. All things are yours, all things including, if a doctor prescribes it, Librium or Milltown or Valium or professional therapy. Take it as prescribed, therefore, and thank God for its anxiety-alleviating qualities. Yet remember that whatever may be temporary helpfulness of these nostrums, they fail to touch the bottom-most sources of anxiety. A far more effective therapeutic is imperative. Anyone tempted to rely excessively on legitimate drugs should feel the probing point of Margaret Widmer's Hymn for Grief. Quote, luminal is what you take for heartbreak. That is all, except sometimes alanol or veronol. Prayer was used, so we hear say, in a sentimental day. You arose from kneeling, sure, God and you'd somehow endure. But such gestures are for us, one would say, ridiculous, out of date. For the young sophisticate. Take it with a little water, says the specialist, my daughter. One one a night and three a day, it will wash your griefs away. End quote. This is Vernon again. For a second thing, anxiety-ridden individuals may be counseled unwisely to use alcohol in one of its main, many inexpensive and accessible forms. They are told that it transforms cowards into heroes and furnishes a cheap escape hatch from purgatorial fear. Even the inspired apostle implicitly recognizes this when Ephesians 
5.18, he engages in an exhortation, which is actually an imperative, quote, and be not drunk with wine, wherein is, ex is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, end quote. The effects of alcohol, therefore, are akin to those of a liberating God relationship. The individual, when intoxicated or spirit-filled, rises above himself, shakes off his inhibitions, and forgets his hang-ups. He undergoes a kind of psychic metamorphosis. Alas, however, sometimes when an individual is intoxicated, the effects are quite opposite. Moreover, even if the effects of alcohol are liberating, they liberate only temporarily, plus the risk of mourning after illness, plus self-disgust, plus the danger of enslaving the person who is supposedly being liberated. For a third thing, anxiety-ridden individuals are counseled to practice yoga because it will enable them to relax. It may do that, of course. Certain techniques, once they are mastered, do facilitate relaxation. But in the long run, any such technique is no more helpful than swallowing an aspirin tablet as a cure for cancer. Though it may relieve tension for a while, it simply does not get down to root causes. For another thing, anxiety-ridden individuals may be counseled to cultivate the art of positive thinking. This, too, may afford temporary relief, but in the long run, it does not solve anybody's basic problems. Once more, anxiety-ridden persons may be counseled to, hard, to work hard, to play hard, and to exercise hard. Such common-sense counsel is commendable and may prove alleviative. But no amount of hard work, hard play, and hard exercise will bring about deep-seated personality change and permanent relief from gnawing apprehension. Still further, anxiety-ridden persons may be counseled to become involved in a cause which will help, will tend to help them forget their fears and sometimes enthusiastic participation in an absorbing issue will do precisely that for a limited while and to a limited degree. Or anxiety-ridden persons may be counseled to join a therapy group or read some of the self-help books by Norman Vincent Peale and E. Stanley Jones. Such counsel is by no means to be despised. An individual who follows out this advice may discover that his tensions and phobias are less acute and bothersome. Finally, anxiety-ridden persons may be counseled to obtain professional help. In some cases, the know-how of a skillful and sympathetic therapist may be of enormous value. At the same time, however, a Christian needs to be aware that secular psychiatrists or psychologists are often not always by any means, reductive naturalists in their basic philosophy, adherence of a dogmatic creed which reduces everything to a one-dimensional level of reality governed by the laws of chemistry and physics.
A Christian needs to realize, nevertheless, that secular specialists in emotional disturbances and behavior disorders can be of lasting benefit to their clients. In his grace, God may sovereignly use them to bring his own people into a life of freedom and fulfillment. Let us turn, though, from these proposed remedies for anxiety to a distinctively biblical prescription. What principles do we discover in God's word for dealing with the very prevalent problem of a free-floating apprehensiveness which can rob life of peace and zest and joy? Our starting point is a bedrock truth. As believers in Jesus Christ, we are eternally united to God, bound to him with the unbreakable cord of our redeeming of redeeming love. Our starting point, in other words, is Paul's triumphant certainty in Romans 8, 38, and 39. Quote, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall separate, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. End quote. To help ourselves fight off what might be repeated attacks of worry and fear and free floating apprehension for which no specific cause can be assigned. Perhaps we ought to write that anxiety alleviating. We perhaps we ought to write that anxiety alleviating text on a card, and repeat it out loud or sub vocally at least five times daily. Quote: For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, end quote. As a second step, we must reaffirm Galatians 2.20. Quote, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me, end quote. We must do more, though, than merely reaffirm the text. Prayerfully and thoughtfully, we must will to grasp that text until it grips us. For the Jesus who lives within us is the victorious Lord. As Christ writes, as Paul writes about the cross in Colossians 2.15, quote, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made, a, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it, unquote. So Jesus is the victorious Lord. He has defeated all the forces of darkness. Jesus is the victorious Lord. He can therefore declare with calm decisiveness, as he does in John 16, 33, quote, I have overcome the world, end quote. Jesus is the victorious Lord. 
he can assert, as he does in Matthew 28, 18, quote, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth, unquote. Jesus is the victorious Lord. Hence, in Romans 14, 8 and 9, Paul makes a statement which needs the ear-splitting accompaniment of 10,000 trumpets, quote, for whether we live, we live unto the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living, unquote. Prayerfully and thoughtfully, we must will to grasp these truths until these truths grip us. Jesus is victor. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the, no, our, victorious Lord. More than that, once by faith we receive him as Savior, we must mediate, we must meditate on the personal significance of all of this. Jesus is mine, yes, mine, my indwelling God, my invisible guide and guardian, my almighty friend, who never leaves me even for a split second, and who is in absolute control of every circumstance. My life situation might be frightening, yet it is no more so than the situation of our Lord's first disciples when one night out on the sea, their boat was in danger of being swamped in a howling storm. Matthew relates that anxiety-arousing situation very vividly. Quote, And when he was entered into a ship, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea, insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. And the disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we perish. And he saith unto them, Why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds in the sea, and there was a great calm. But the men marveled, saying, What matter of man is this? What manner of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? That's from Matthew 8, 23 through 27. This is Vernon again. No wonder his disciples marveled. Jesus demonstrated that he is indeed, as master of sea and storm, the master of every troubled situation. This is the fear-dispelling truth which I, and you as well, must prayerfully and gratefully will to grasp until it unshakably grips us. We are now ready for a third step, and a crucial one at that. What if we lack faith? What if it is virtually impossible for us to reckon on the Savior's indwelling presence through the Holy Spirit? What then? 
faith we learn in Ephesians 2.8 is a gift of God. How could Paul express himself any more explicitly? Quote, for by grace ye are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, unquote. Since faith is a, com a component of salvation, is the gift of God, we must hum humbly ask him for it. Only we must ask for it definitely and with a pinpointed specificity. Yes, we must ask humbly and specifically that God will grant us this gift. As James admonished, admonishes in chapter 4, verse 2 of his down-to-earth epistle, quote, ye have not because ye ask not, unquote. And Jesus reinforces his apostle by guaranteeing, quote, ask and it shall be given to you, unquote, Matthew 7, 7. To that guarantee, he adds the further guarantee, quote, if ye being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him, unquote. That's from Luke 11.13. We need not ask, please notice, for the Spirit's indwelling presence. He comes to live within us the very moment we accept Jesus as Savior. But we do need to ask continually and humbly and specifically for the indwelling and empowering of the Holy Spirit. For one of that gracious cluster of fruits produced by the Spirit is precisely the fruit of faith, as Paul teaches us in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. After we have definitely prayed for the gift of faith, we are ready to take the fourth step. Acting on the certainty that God, who unfailingly keeps his word, has granted us the requested gift, no matter how little feeling there may be, we must act in faith and surrender our anxieties to Jesus Christ. We must expectantly ask him to reach down into the subterranean depths of our psyches and cut through the roots of worry and fear. This means a focused surrender in keeping with 1 Peter 5, 7. Quote, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you, unquote. This may mean making the surrender verbally in the presence of one or more trusted friends who agree to continue with us in thankful intercession for a future free from whatever fear may have formally robbed us of peace. Usually this may mean prayerful prayerfully, pardon, prayerful verbalization, because in verbalization we exteriorize our anxiety, and thus by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, exercise anxiety. Quote, confess your faults one to another, unquote, the apostle instructs us, quote, that you may be healed, unquote. 
That's from James 5.16. This may also mean that we write down on a piece of paper the fears which have been plaguing us. Then, in the presence of one or more trusted friends, we solemnly burn that paper, exclaiming as Paul does in 1 Corinthians 5, 15, excuse me, 1557, quote, thanks be to God who keeps on giving us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, unquote. A fifth step, however, needs to be taken. Habitually, we must share in some vital fellowship of believers who openly and compassionately keep on ministering to us as members of the same body, identified with the same Lord, indwelt by the same Spirit, fighting the same battle, rejoicing in the same victory, and bearing the same witness. Quote, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, unquote. Philippians 4.13. These five steps will carry us a long distance into a new life of freedom, freedom from the enslaving tension of peace-destroying anxiety. That's the end of the chapter. Chapter 2. Pardon, that's chapter three, the Bible anxiety, part two. Oh, that was part, sorry, that was chapter two, the Bible and anxiety, part two. From the book, Emotional Problems and the Gospel by Vernon Grounds, published by Zondervan, 1976. It's a wonderful uh, book. I highly recommend that you get it. If For more information on Vernon Grounds, the person, I would recommend that you take a listen to the first episode in this series, which was last time where I talk a little bit more about him. I can um, come up with, if you're interested, more uh, of a biographical sketch uh, later. Let me make a little pitch to you that you uh, subscribe to the Substack, the TRP Substack, which is the Republican professor on Substack, and you can get the newsletter for free. Um, you can also make comments, and if you have comments, you want to give feedback or uh, suggest topics or guests on the Republican Professor podcast, you can email the Republican professor at substack.com and uh, someone will respond to you eventually. <laughs> um, and uh, we would love to hear from you if you have something uh, helpful or interesting to say. If you have a question, we'll do our best to get back with you if it's a relevant question. Uh, but uh, in general, we're providing resources here, and if you're interested in the resource, great. I happen to know that it's valuable, and so I don't really need anybody else to tell me that. I don't mean to be rude or anything like that, and that's not what this is about, but it's always a little bit odd to me when podcasters uh, at the very end thank people for listening the reason it's odd is it's it's not inappropriate or anything, but it's it's um, 
sometimes it feels a little bit like um, they're not sure about the value that they're providing. Um, and maybe it's just being polite, but um, I'm confident about what the material is here. And um, I think you should be thanking me, actually. I, I don't mean to sound rude, <laughs> and please don't take it that way. But, um, you know, I'm not getting rich over here. And uh, this is a product of a lot of reading, thought, research, connection with people. And um, it is quite valuable. If you can see that, then maybe that's why you're listening. If you can't see that, well, I don't know what to say to you. Maybe the education system has failed you. But in any case, wherever you are, whoever you are, um, I do enjoy having uh, people connect with the material. Uh, and that that brings me happiness. So if, if you're connecting with the material, that's great. That I'm I'm happy to hear that. So um please connect and we can connect with this material going forward. Have a good day. <laughs>